Hi friends, welcome back to Unearthing, our chats with organizers, leaders, and creators on the powerful tools they're making to help us move for justice. I'm Nico Chin, founder of Up With Community. We help people learn better together. Today, we are talking about economic justice and the ties that bind us. We're chatting with my friend and author, Brian Johnson, who has just published Our Fair Share, a book that I have thoroughly been soaking in this month and that I'm excited to share with our community. Our Fair Share explores our democracy and our responsibility to each other, as well as the economic drivers that are pulling us apart. And it offers a solution for how we can overcome those challenges to our unity. We talk a lot about at Up With Community and through our field guide for ideas to action about power and collaboration. And that's why I was excited to sit down and talk with Brian today. Our podcast is supported by uh, all of the folks helping us out on Patreon and PayPal. If you want to help us promote more content like this in the future, just go to www.upwithcommunity.org forward slash support. Hey, Brian, thanks for being Hi, here. Nico, I'm so happy to join you today. I'm glad to have this time with you, Brian. Um, you know, Brian, my, my main takeaway, the first thing I had when I started to crack open the book was this is such a heartfelt book. It's such a heartfelt book. Tell us about the nut at the core of that heart, which is the citizen dividend. Yeah. What is it and uh, what do you bring into the table? Sure. Uh, I mean, the book itself makes a very clear, probably bold claim that every American has an ownership claim to our prosperity, mm-hmm. that, uh, that it is not something that we, uh, uh, you know, that we may give out of the beneficence of, of corporations, that it is not the like altruism of good government that, that should spread wealth around. It is a right from our ownership stake in our collective wealth um, that drives the fact that we deserve a share in American prosperity. And so the citizen dividend is merely a manifestation of that. It says that because every single business uses wealth we all own together to create value, that we deserve a slice of that value. So it says 5% of all business profits every year should be paid into a national fund and every American should get an equal check from that fund every single year. Mm. 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 I wanna get more into it. So why did you choose to, to share this idea as a book? It's not how I started. Um, okay. So, you know, I, uh, about five years ago when I sat down, let me, let me kind of paint the picture of what, what drew me to sit down here. So, you know, I had this life um, that was really nomadic. Uh, my dad was in the army when I was growing up. So before I was 14 years old, I lived in 11 different homes across the country. And then on top of that, I've had this adult life that was similarly nomadic, right? I taught first grade in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I went to grad school in the Bay Area. I ran public schools in Los Angeles. I helped lead community organizing teams around the country. Now I travel the state of Illinois as the LGBTQ civil rights leader here. And so I had seen for four decades of my life how interconnected and vibrant and dynamic we are as a country. That the 
soldiers in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and the mothers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the screenwriters in, in Los Angeles, and the queer youth in Peoria are all this equal uh, part of what makes America great. And yet, I was seeing incredible research that was showing that we are experiencing levels of economic inequality that we haven't seen in a century. Because I want to underscore that point. Like, I think there's this myth out there that, a matter of fact, I was on a TV program the other night where an economics professor was saying, no, we always have inequality. Um, but the levels of inequality we have now are not our parents' level of inequality. They're not our grandparents' level of inequality. This is inequality we haven't seen since the 1920s. And so I sat down to begin to wrestle with this, not to write a book, but I made a promise to myself that I was going to write for 30 minutes every single morning to try to say, how could it be that a country that I personally know is strong in its interconnectedness, allowing inequality to flourish on an almost ahistoric level? Mm. And then so how did it go from that writing to be a book? So after about five months, I looked down and I said, I think I might have something here. And, <laughs> and uh, I was like, maybe I'll write a magazine article. Uh, who knows? So I, um, I sent it out. I sent the introductory uh, chapter, which very much looks like what the introduction of the book looks like now, uh, to a friend of mine who was a published author. And she said, you do have something here. Um, and then I was like, well, could you read the rest of it? She's like, sure. And I sent the rest of it. And she said, the rest of the book is terribly boring and dry. <laughs> She's like, you've got to, if you're going to compel uh, this story forward, you've got to find real people to breathe life into the story. And so what I decided to do is I said, if I can find an agent, and then if that agent can find a publisher, I will then, and I end, you know, we, we sell the book, I will find you know, great people to tell this story about the hope and possibility of economic justice in America through. Um, so that's what I did. Well, I, I think I probably pitched it to two dozen agents. To be honest, one picked it up. I think my agent pitched it to two dozen publishers. I think one picked it up. Um, but all it takes is one. And I found the right agent and the right editor and the right publisher. And, uh, and we were off to the races. Yeah. Well, I was a minor in economics. Right. And so, you know, so you, I, you took more in economics than I did. <laughs> so when I opened the book and I saw, you know, I saw the graphs and I, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm here for this. What struck me was the, the richness of the storytelling around the graphs and around the data. And I really enjoyed that. And, and you really got such um, personal and intimate stories, both from yourself, but also from the people that you were talking to. What impact did collecting those stories have on you? I mean, first, it's, it's just how I know to do the work, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's community organizing or LGBTQ civil rights or even being a classroom teacher, like the heart of what I do is just intentional listening. Um, and you know what, I will tell you, when I took over at Equality Illinois here in, in Chicago, the first thing I did was have 250 small group or one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. And I say that because it's not like the practice that I put in, in place for the book was different from the practice that I had in other parts of my life, which I think was really helpful. But for me to talk to people like Ben and Joanna and Stephanie and Jamal and Cleet, 
it, uh, and hear their life stories, not with an agenda, like I need you to prove this point, but just can, can I hold the beauty and the fragility and the power of your life story for a little bit? It helped me to three-dimensionalize the problems of injustice, economic inequality in, in our country. And it helped um, me to ground my hope for a brighter future in, in real people's lives. Mm. Mm. One of the things that I've been noticing a lot um, in the work of doing racial justice work or, or doing power and organizing is, you know, in our progressive circles, we, we, you know, we, can, we can talk about race a little bit more than we could four or five years ago. Uh, we can talk about LGBTQ plus issues a lot more than we could 10 years ago. No <laughs> long way to go. Yeah, yep. No long way to go. Um, and I often find class is still that silent elephant in the room for so many people. What was it like bringing class stories to the forefront and really foregrounding this when in so many of our progressive circles, it's still pretty taboo to talk about? Yeah, I mean, we still have a narrative in this country about, um, you know, uh, wealth deservedness, right? That if you have wealth, you deserve wealth. Um, and it flips on, on the other side when we talk about poverty, right? Like think about how many poverty reduction programs are grounded in the sense of like, who is worthy of receiving government supports, right? Whether it's drug testing or means testing or all these onerous requirements we put in, in front of people. Like we have this incredible narrative um, in our country that basically, you know, it, it's, a, it's a civic prosperity gospel, right? It says, if you're rich, you deserve to be rich. And if you're poor, you deserve to be poor, which is total bunk, right? Absolute bunk. And so when I think of Mike Espinosa telling me about the time in his life when he's living out of a car, right? Or Jamal Nelson sharing what it was like to have the fourth member of his family be scarcity. Um, it, was, it was pretty powerful stuff. Um, and I also think I became a lot more aware that it's, it is increasingly difficult for me to talk about race without talking about class and to talk about class without talking about race, right? Because racism was invented hundreds of years ago as a tool to allow people to hoard wealth, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we hoard wealth in a way that reinforces racism. So I think it's helped me to understand the interconnectedness of those major national sins and traumas um, and, and to find a way to, to speak about both and in a reinforcing way. Yeah, yeah. So there's a nice, there's a good section of the book that talks about why inequality is rising. And you, you know, it's, it, it's funny that you talk about the 1920s. I've often been sitting thinking about this feels a lot like the 1890s or the 1880s. Or the 1890s. Also true. Also all of, true. All of yep. the, and, and it's yep. shocking, you know, because I think, you know, being a kid in the 90s, I was like, well, we're only going up from here. That's what everybody's right. telling me, like Fern Gully, like we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna fix this. We yep. are gonna fix this, right? This is a linear upward graph. And you know, as as someone who's starting a family who's who's has young children now, I'm really sitting with this, like, oh, this just might get worse and worse and worse, right? And so there's a lot that keeps me up at night. There's a lot that I'm sitting with. And so as you were gathering all of these factors 
of iniquity. I'm curious which of them hit you the most or which really like kind of disturbed or disrupted you the most. You mean the manifestations or the contributing factors? Contributing factors. Yeah. The contributing factors. Yeah. So I, I, you know, going back to the point of story, it was actually the story of Cleet Kylie that helped me to crystallize this. Cleet Kylie is a, was born in the 1940s, an Irish Catholic priest, ends up, uh, he was not born a priest, he was born an Irish Catholic young kid who became a priest in the, you know, in the 60s, very active in civil rights and, and justice, uh, largely served immigrant Latino communities in, in parishes in Chicago, and is now in the labor rights movement um, here, here in the city. And, um, you know, when I dived into the research about what is contributing to inequality, I mean, there are a number of factors, right? There is the decline of private sector unionization. There is the rise of our willingness to exploit foreign and immigrant labor at lower costs, right? There is the rise of, of corporate executive lobbying power and political muscle. But I think for me, what hearing Cleet tell me about the story was like, oh, like what's really helped this happen is this enabling narrative, right? Because coming out of World War II, we were led by a generation of people steeped in shared sacrifice and collective well-being, right? Um, that is not to say that we were this utopian place in the 50s and 60s. Lord knows if I had lived in that era, I would have had a much harder life. But at least it was this narrative that says, you know, it, that we have to take care of each other. And it's why, you know, CEOs were making 20 to 30 times the average worker. We didn't have the complex financial instruments of hedge funds and things like that. But what happened was, um, after we moved out of that, we needed a narrative that justified our increased aggressions against the Soviet bloc. So what started as this narrative around political freedom, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of government, freedom to vote freedom of religion morphed into a narrative of economic freedom and that what made us strong as a country was our refusal to be bound to each other. And then we won, right? This is why I think the 90s is so important. And I say in the book, there are few things as dangerous as a winner because victories rarely drive introspection. And if you want to point to like where things went off the rails, it was certainly in the 80s and then it ramped up in the 90s. Right? We deregulated at an unprecedented clip, right? Glass-Steagall. We cut tax rates on the highest earners and in corporations. Um, and we basically said, see, what makes us unique in the world is that we refuse to take care of each other. We don't have a responsibility to each other. And that is so foreign to what has so much of our truth, at least economically, for a big chunk of our history. Um, and I think I thought a lot about how you can have a host of political and social and economic factors but it is really an, an enabling narrative for good or for bad that's going to drive justice or injustice. Mm, mm, mm. When I left the book, I really saw two useful components for communities to take away. And I wanna explore both. Mm. So the first is, even in addition to the idea of the citizen dividend, which I wanna come back to in a minute, what I find useful about the book is the meditation on class and our experiences as a democracy, right? T connecting our, our economic experiences to our political experiences, to our racial experiences and, and, and other elements of our identity. And I, and I just think it's an important set of stories and a unique set of stories for community organizers, 
for political advocates to sit with. What, how would you like to see readers or communities using the, the narratives and the insights of the book moving forward? I mean, first, I think is the acceptance that we cannot have a democracy that requires us to come together if we have an economy that's pulling us apart. So I think that the key question to me is, um, I want people to be asking the big questions um, around, um, you know, does this level of economic inequality represent who we truly believe we can be? Who owns wealth in this country? Um, who should own wealth in this country? And what are our collective rights to share in our prosperity? And I say that because I think a lot of the work around economic justice has rightly, and I think helpfully focused on a justice claim or a benefit claim, right? The justice claim is those most harmed by the inequities of our system um, should receive additional benefits to redress those harms. Absolutely. There's the benefit claim. That is, if we invest in if we invest in the poor and the most marginalized, it will make our, our society better. And I think that is absolutely true. But I think we also need to pair that with a rights-based claim um, that we actually have a right, just like we have a democratic right uh, to participate together and share in joint ownership of our democracy. We have an economic right to share in our collective prosperity. Mm. 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 And let's talk about the role the citizen dividend plays in this. So we yeah. talked a little bit about the mechanism, right? So as corporations make profits in the U.S., 5% is put into a fund and everyone in the U.S. receives uh, equal amounts of checks. How? Talk a little bit about, um, you know, you talk about this not being a tax. I do. Say a little bit about how you connect this or don't to the ideas of universal basic income. Yeah. And, um, and also like, how do you describe the quality of shift this would make in our rising inequality in the US if yeah. we did that? Yeah, I'll see if I can dive in on that. Those are big questions. So you could tell me what I leave unanswered. First, like, let's go back and talk about what a dividend is, right? We, we think it, the first dividend payments were probably structured about 400 years ago. Um, and this idea that when a business needed new money to grow or to invest in itself. Um, it could sell shares uh, of ownership um, to the general public and that anyone who bought those shares or anyone that bought the shares from those people who originally bought those shares would get a slice of the profits, right? And so I say that because this structure has existed far before the, you know, our country has existed. But it's a recognition that there's wealth we all own together that goes into, into profit making. Wealth like our natural resources, our rivers, our wind, our mines. Wealth like our inherited systems, like our constitution, our courts, our financial markets. Wealth like our societal resources, our infrastructure, our education system, our power grids. And if you're going to use that wealth to create profit, then you owe, as part of a market-based system, uh, part of those new profits back to us as original owners of that wealth, right? It is not a tax. Like we're not saying you need to take a slice of your profits and pay it to the government to invest in social services, which is absolutely critical and we need more of. Um, but it's a separate claim, 
um, that starts with the recognition that we all own wealth together um, in this country. And so when you think about like, what would 5% do? I mean, in nuts and bolts, it would, <clears throat> it would go up and down every year, but in 2015 dollars, it looks like it would be around $570 per American or just over $2,000 for a family of four. So on the most basic level, that's on average enough for two months worth of rent and two months worth of groceries, almost two months worth of childcare for the median American family. So for those living on the margins really squeezed, there'd be a real impact there. But I think more so, you know, if you get a check in the mail every single year, that is your slice of collective American prosperity, I'm hoping it's going to drive a virtuous reinforcing set of behaviors and questions, right? So if I get this check, then I must own something that is of worth. And so must my neighbor. And so must the people across the street. Uh, and so must the people, as we call in Illinois, downstate. Um, and so must the naturalized citizen. And so it also would encourage us to say, not only do what we own, but it would begin to help us look at each other as co-owners and co-beneficiaries of our collective wealth. And I hope the beginnings of restructuring our economy and, and the conversation about who benefits from that will lead to a ripple effect of, of other behaviors that I think are, are, are positive when it comes to deciding you know, who our economy should benefit. And how does this idea in your mind compare or not to the idea of a universal basic income? Right. Thank you for that. So a universal basic income, there are a lot of different ways people describe it. But a simple way that I think about it is it's the belief that, um, you know, the, the income needed to meet everyone's basic needs, housing, healthcare, food, shelter, um, should be covered um, by a universal basic income so that people can put their work to their highest productive use, whether it's creating good art or innovating or things like that. So a citizen dividend um, is, is distinct um, in a couple of key ways. So first um, is it's grounded in this sense of right. Like nobody that I've seen is out there saying a universal basic income is a right, um, but you know, the citizen dividend is grounded as a right. Second of all, the way it's currently structured, it's not meant to provide everyone's basic needs. It's not enough of a payment there. We could decide a future down the road, like we could make it 10 or 20 or 50% of corporate profits. So it could be that, but right now it's not. And then third, it is meant to fluctuate, right? As the economy grows and is that more dynamic, we would benefit more. As it shrinks and contracts, we would benefit less. So it's, it's meant to fluctuate up and down, whereas a universal basic income um, would be more consistent year over year. Mm. Mm. So, you, so where would you like to see the idea of the citizen dividend go from here? And, and where, yeah, how do you hope that has a life beyond the book? So I think I'd go back to that power of the enabling narrative um, that I talked about in the Cleet Kylie example. I hope that we initiate some form of citizen dividend on a national level here in this country. But more importantly, um, I hope that we can build out a series of conversations that helps us as, as, as Americans in our country develop a shared belief um, that we own wealth together uh, and we all have an ownership claim uh, to be able to benefit from American prosperity. Like it is that story that I wanna make sure we are telling over and over again. So I wanna to get to the citizen dividend. I don't wanna jump so quickly to the citizen dividend that we're not having those deeper conversations. 
So the way in my own little space, what I'm doing is, you know, I'm getting to as many community groups or podcasts and whatnot, just to start talking about this story. And I hope that everybody who comes across this book is willing to convene their friends and neighbors and compatriots in the work to say, hey, like, what do we own together as Americans? And what is our right to benefit from, from our, our national prosperity? Um, that, those conversations are, are what I think would lead to not just a stickier citizen dividend, but for a deeper reckoning um, to our responsibility to build a more American uh, economy. You know, and what's really interesting as I'm listening to you talk is in that reckoning with the power enabling story, many, many folks in the circles that you're sharing this book with fight corporate power in the US. Mm -hmm. Many people don't want to identify as owning corporations that are hurting uh, people, not all corporations, right? But, but the hegemony of US corporations, the colonialization of US corporations. And so how do you wrestle with that in the idea of our collective democracy? You know, you're really trying to call us in not to, we're all corporate colonizers, but we're like a democratic unit <laughs> that has a responsibility to each other. How do you wrestle with that tension? That's a good question. Um, I'll take, I'll take a few stabs at that and we'll see what ends up sticking. And I'm sure I'll think about that more. Um, so first is, um, if we refuse to claim our wealth, uh, the corporations will only benefit more and more. I am simply asking people to claim what is rightfully ours an understanding of our joint wealth. You know, there's a real drive here to value those things at zero in the economic sense, right? Mm -hmm. Our constitution, let's value that at zero. Our court system, let's value that at zero. Our uh, financial markets, our roads, our um, you know, natural resources, let's value those as zero. Because if those are zero value, then um, everybody gets the claim, I turned a profit all by myself. So I get to hoard as much wealth as possible. So first is simply saying that like, you know, before we even get downstream to what, part, what role we all play in, in corporations, I just ask people to claim the wealth that is rightfully ours right in front of our face. I think the second thing, and um, I think this is probably deeply influenced um, by, um, uh, by the fact that I'm working my way through uh, Clint Smith's How the Word Was Passed, you know, and how uh, in, in documenting the role of enslavement in American history and our current reckoning with it, just the realization that like nobody escaped um, the sins of, of slavery, right? I mean, the Northern states that liked to have this story about you know, freedom, like they were running textile mills using cotton that was cheap because it was used with enslaved labor. Like that. So I think there is a recognition that, you know, we are all, you know, what is it Rabbi Herschel says that like in a democracy, um, not everyone is culpable, but, um, but we're all responsible. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is important to say like, look, um, it, we, none of us stand outside the system. So uh, what is our role inside the system uh, to begin uh, demanding better? And I think an ownership footing is a really strong place to start. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you for this walk through the book. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Thank you for, for reading it. Thank you for, um, you know, we haven't admitted is that 
you helped look at early drafts to help me think about things in new ways. So I appreciate um, your, your push, particularly on the lens of power. Um, and thinking about that was really helpful. That's great. That's great. Well, I appreciate this, Brian. It, um, any URLs that you want to share or any hashtags that you want to share for the book? Yes. Please follow me on Twitter at I am the real BCJ. You can also uh, go to my website at briancjohnson.org. That's all one word, briancjohnson.org. Um, I particularly have a media place uh, where you can kind of uh, stay uh, in tune about um, all the different uh, uh, places that, that our fair share in the citizen dividend is being discussed. Awesome. Awesome. And there'll be more content like this over at upwithcommunity.org. Thanks for listening and have a good day.